0: In this second lecture, we shall deal with the peaceful settlement of disputes relating to international watercourses, and this will be followed by a brief examination of the Convention's Article 33 of the peaceful settlement on the peaceful settlement of disputes. We will then look at some practical cases and finally make, draw some very short conclusions. Water conflict, course conflicts have been frequent and important in the past. As a number of examples show, the dispute over the Indus waters between India and Pakistan after partition, settled in 1960 by a mediation of the World Bank or the Lake Lanou case, opposing France to Spain, and dealt with in 1957 by an arbitral tribunal. More recent cases brought before the International Court of Justice are those relating to the gabcikovo Maros project, Hungary versus Slovakia, 1997, to the paper mills on the Uruguay River, between Argentina and Uruguay, 2006, to the work undertaken in the vicinity of the border area, Costa Rica versus Nicaragua, 2015, and to the status and the waters of the Silala River, Chile versus Bolivia, 2016. Regarding arbitration, the Kishinganga neilam river case between Pakistan and India must be recalled, which was settled by two awards handed down in 2013 by an arbitral tribunal established in accordance with Article 9 of the 1960 Indus Waters Treaty and an extra G to that instrument. Among the most interesting bilateral settlement clauses are those of the Indus Water Treaties. That instrument makes it possible to bring controversies over the interpretation or application of the treaty provisions before the Indus Water Commission or before a neutral expert. The main third-party settlement mechanism, however, seems to be arbitration. A dispute may be submitted unilaterally by either party to a seven-member ad hoc arbitral tribunal, composed in the following way. The claimant state and the respondent state shall each appoint two members. This leaves three umpires to be selected. The chairman, who will be chosen, failing agreement between the parties, by either the president of the World Bank or the Secretary General of the United Nations a specialist of international law who shall be appointed by the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales or by the Chief Justice of the United United States Supreme Court, and an engineer to be selected by either the President of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology or the Rector of the Imperial College at London. For the three persons, the nominating authority is, in the absence of an agreement between the parties, determined by drawing lots. That this complex formula can work has been shown by the recently concluded Kishenganga arbitration, of which more will be said later on. We shall now turn to the procedures of third-party settlement provided for by Article 33 of the 1970 Convention. Uh, The first procedure I want to look at is called called a fact-finding procedure. For the disputes arising over the interpretation and application of the provisions of the 1970 convention, Article 33 of that convention institutes a procedure of negotiations and consultations, which may be initiated by either party. If no solution is forthcoming within six months, each party may Propose one or several third-party modes of settlement. Good offices, mediation, conciliation, intervention of an international management board, arbitration, or recourse to a permanent international judicial organ. If such an initiative taken by one party shows no results within six months of its having been taken, Each party may request the opening of an, I quote, impartial procedure of inquiry. Uh, Before a commission composed of three members, each party shall appoint one member, and the members so appointed, it is hoped, will agree on a third person who shall serve as a chairman. So it is a, a tripartite. Uh, organ. Failing agreement on this third person between the nationally appointed members, within a three-month period, each party may ask the Secretary-General of the United Nations to appoint the Commission's Chairman. If one party attempts to sabotage the constitution of such a Commission by refusing to appoint its own national member within three months following the date of the request to establish a commission, the other party may invite the Secretary-General of the United Nations to appoint an individual who has the nationality of neither a party to the dispute nor of another riparian state. Mm. It is that individual who will then act as a single commission Subsequently, the Commission, or Singular Commission, as the case may be, will address a report to the parties which, and I quote, sets forth its findings and the reasons, therefore, and such recommendations as it deems appropriate for an equitable solution of the dispute. End of quotation. The fact that the Commission, or single Commissioner, has to make recommendations for the settlement of the disputes shows that it is not a genuine fact-finding organ, but one of conciliation. If it were a genuine organ of inquiry, its mandate would be strictly confined to establishing the facts of the case. The 1990-70 Convention also leaves a modest place for jurisdictional modes of settlement. Upon becoming a party to the Convention, or at any time thereafter, any State may file with the depository a written instrument declaring that in respect of any dispute not settled by recourse to good offices, mediation or conciliation, to a joint watercourse institution, or to arbitration or settlement, by a permanent international judicial body, it recognizes as compulsory without special agreement in relation to any other party accepting the same obligation, submission to the International Court of Justice and or arbitration by an ad hoc tribunal set up with in accordance with the provisions of an annex to the Convention, which I will not go into. Uh, So much for the rules on dispute settlement found in the 1997 Convention. I now would like to turn to some recent case law, and more precisely to two cases, to the Kishenganga-Nelum arbitration opposing India to Pakistan and on the dispute over the status and use of the waters of the Silala between Chile and Bolivia, now pending before the International Court of Justice. Let me begin with the Kishenganga-Nelum case. This recent case opposing Pakistan to India pertained to the interpretation of the 1960 Indus Water Treaty. The facts of the case were the following. And I refer you to the map that will be uh, available together uh, with this lecture. Um, The facts of the case were the following. India had planned and started to build a dam on the Kishenganga or Neelam River a tributary to the Ihelum, which is itself a tributary of the Indus. This dam was to be located near the line separating Indian-administered from Pakistan-controlled Kashmir. A large part of the river were to be diverted through a tunnel of high declivity Reading, leading to a power station and then into Lake Wular, from where it returned to the same river Ihelum and eventually to the Pakistan-controlled area and the Indus River. As a result, the flow of the Kishenganga Nilan would be diminished over a substantial part of the original riverbed located in Pakistani-administered territory. The realization of this plan would, said Pakistan, the lower riparian, be prejudicial to the needs of the population on the Pakistani side, as well as to the protection of the environment and adversely affect the performance of a power plant which was under under construction on Pakistan-controlled territory. That construction was, however, less advanced than that undertaken by India. The Arbitral Tribunal, composed in accordance with the formula which I referred to earlier, was to ask to interpret the Indus Water Treaty rather than to apply customary law. It was requested to answer three questions. First was India entitled to divert the waters of the Kishenganga Nilum River, a sub-tributary of the Indus in the immediate vicinity of the line of control, separating the Indian-run territory of Kashmir from that administered by Pakistan, in order to build and operate an electrical power plant, provided that it undertook to return the diverted waters to the Ihelum, A tributary of the Indus before it entered Pakistan controlled territory. Second question What method was to be used for clearing, for cleaning the Kishenganga retention basin above the line of control? And third, what quantity of waters should, for ecological and other reasons, the need of the local population, the operation of a power plant, plant by Pakistan continue to run in the old bed. Despite the political tensions between the parties to this case, the tribunal, composed in accordance with the formula described earlier, was able to reply union- unanimously to the three questions and, what was more, to the apparent satisfaction or absence of dissatisfaction of both antagonists. Regarding the first question, perhaps the most crucial one, the tribunal held in its partial award of 18 February 2013 that India was entitled to realize her project, though on a somewhat reduced scale. The 1960 treaty did not prohibit it, The waters to be diverted were not or only minimally used by Pakistan, and that state's plan to harness the lower Kishanganga were much less advanced than those of India. Moreover, the original riverbed on Pakistan's side of the line of control received additional waters from three tributaries located on Pakistan-controlled soil. The project involved the diversion and subsequent return of the same waters and was compatible with the 1960 Treaty, according to the Arbitral Tribunal. In this aspect, it resembles the situation another Arbitral Tribunal had to deal with. Over 50 years earlier, in the Lake Lanou case, opposing Spain to France, except that the waters diverted from the Kishinganga and returned later on were identical, which was not the case for the waters diverted from Lake Lanou and those given back later on. By contrast, the tribunal's answer to the question of sediment control in the reservoir was favorable to Pakistan. The method proposed by India, drawdown flushing, would have involved a complete periodical emptying of the reservoir, thus increasing the lower riparian's fear and distrust of the upper riparian, India. As there are techniques for removing sedimentation deposits without entirely draining reservoirs, the the tribunal discarded the method um, advocated by India. The third issue addressed in the final award of 20th December 2013 was that of determining the minimum flow to be maintained by India in the Kishin Ganga's old riverbed, especially during the winter season. That flow had to be sufficient to satisfy the local population's needs and to allow for the future operation of a power plant in the Pakistani-controlled part of Kashmir. It also had to satisfy the requirements of environmental protection. The tribunal fixed the minimum flow at 9 cubic meters per second and added that after a seven-year period, each party could request a review of the issue. As pointed out already, the tribunal's findings in the Kishinganga case are based on the provisions of the 1960 Indus Water Treaty. They do, however, affect existing customary law in some ways. They confirm that diversions of water compensated by subsequent restitution can be lawful, and that environmental considerations are part and parcel of the process of attributing to the riparian states reasonable and equitable parts of the uses of international watercourses. I now come to a, the second case, which is that of the waters of the Silala. On the 6th of June 2016, Chile filed an application against Bolivia with the International Court of Justice. The application relates to a dispute concerning the status and uses of the waters of the Silala, a river originating from groundwater springs in Bolivian territory a few kilometers northeast of the Bolivia-Chile border. It then crosses that border and flows into Chilean territory where it empties into the Inacaliri River. According to the applicant state, Chile, the Silala's total length is about 8.5 kilometers, about 3.8 of which are located in Bolivia and 4.7 on Chilean territory. In its application, Chile claims that historically the waters of the Silala have, for more than a century, been used by Chile for various purposes, including the provision of waters to the city of Antofagasta and the towns of Sierra Gorda and Baquedano. Chile further points out that the international character of the Silala was never disputed until 1999 when Bolivia began to claim that its waters were exclusively Bolivian. Chile also asserts that it had always been willing to examine proposals for a common regime of utilization, but that discussions on this point were unfruitful as Bolivia argued that the Silala River was not an international watercourse at all and that it was entitled, therefore, to the entirety of the river's use. Accordingly, Chile submits, first, that the Silala system, including its underground parts, is an international watercourse, the use of which is governed by the rules of customary international law. The two states are not parties to the 1997 convention. Second submission, Chile is entitled to the reasonable and equitable use of the waters of the system in in accordance with the rules of customary international law. Third, that under these rules, Chile is entitled to the use it currently makes of the waters of the Silala. Fourth, that Bolivia has to take all appropriate measures to prevent and control pollution and other forms of harm to Chile, resulting from its activities in the vicinity of the river. And finally, fifth submission, that Bolivia is duty-bound to cooperate and to provide Chile with timely notification of planned measures which may have an adverse impact on a shared resource. It also has to exchange relevant relevant data and information and to conduct environmental impact assessments where appropriate in order to enable Chile to evaluate the possible effect of the measures planned by Bolivia. At the present time, the case is still at its written stage, and cannot therefore be commented further. One will note, however, that neither the state, neither state, is a party to the 1977 Convention, and this, of course, raises the question of whether and to what extent that Convention is nevertheless applicable because it reflects rules of customary international law. And now for some very brief conclusions. The coming into force of the 190-70 convention is certainly a happy event, especially if one considers that with a constantly increasing world world population, the number of water problems and conflict is bound to rise. Three basic defects must be noted, however. First, the number of state parties 20 years after the conclusion of the Convention remains relatively modest and is unlikely to increase suddenly and miraculously. Second, the problem of the relationship between Articles 5 and 6 of the Convention that is, the reasonable and equitable utilization principle, on the one hand, and Article 7, the no-harm rule on the other, has not been clearly solved. This is certainly a drawback and maybe one of the reasons for some states not to become parties to the 1997 Convention. Another reason for this lack of enthusiasm on the part of members of the international community is the weakness of the Convention's provisions on dispute settlement in a field which is particularly critical for the maintenance of international peace and security. And with these three conclusions, I have reached the end of my second lecture. Thank you.